Let me tell you about the time I ended up on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper. I was there for a summer on a science journalism fellowship, and I was covering tons of stories about weird animals and the people who study them. That's always been my kind of thing. But this wasn't one of my stories ending up on the front page, though that did happen. This was me, Sebastian, ending up on the front page. Let me explain. I was in the newsroom this one time with my fellow reporters, and we were sharing other articles that had come out that we were interested in. And I saw this one about a new species of deep-sea anglerfish. You know, big bulbous fish, fangly big jaws, sharp teeth, glowing lure hanging up on top of it. The fish was really cool, and the scientists had learned really cool things about its biology. But I couldn't help but notice all of the adjectives that the reporter had used to describe the fish were incredibly negative. Things like creepy, monstrous, out of your nightmares. In a story that's supposed to be about sharing how cool and interesting this animal is, it's the sort of thing that I've seen millions of times already. Once you're aware of it, you cannot stop seeing it. And for whatever reason, this time I just went off. Why is it that certain animals get described in positive terms and other ones always get thrown under the bus in the same way? Even when these animals are the focus of the story, when it's about how special and interesting they are, why aren't they portrayed as the heroes? Anyway, I had quite a few similar rants during my fellowship there. And on the last day, the other reporters on the science team surprised me with one of probably the sweetest going-away gifts I've ever received. They mocked up a front-page spread of the Inquirer with a featured headline titled Nature's Defender. And it was a photo of my face photoshopped onto, of course, Spider-Man. I'm a huge, huge Spider-Man fan. And the story was about how I was standing up for all the animals that were getting bad press through no fault of their own. And, you know, it was really, really touching. I don't go around calling myself Nature's Defender, but I am so glad that if there's any one thing that people take away from my reporting, it was that. I'm Sebastian Echeverri. And I'm Rutendo Shackleton. And this is the BBC Earth Podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In this episode, we're celebrating defenders of the Earth in all their forms. How plants use chemical SOS signals to recruit insect mercenaries, indigenous women fighting for change in Brazil, and sticking up for nature's uglier creatures. 
when we think about defenders of the earth, we might think about characters like Spider-Man, uh, ourselves in comic book form. <laughs> but another character that comes to mind is Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Did you ever watch that comic? Captain Planet, he's a hero, gonna take pollution down, down to, to zero. zero. <laughs> it's catchy. It really is. Can I love I it. <laughs> it stood out to me. I mean, looking back, it was one of those cases where you have this, this mythical, fantastical character, but the threat that they're facing is something real, right? It was stuff that I'd see in the news even at the time. Pollution, deforestation, poaching, real problems happening in the real world. These sort of stories about a superpowered character taking on these threats, it's a really common thing in even stories about nature and animals. Like, there's this long-standing myth in parts of African and Asian folklore that rhinos are these, like, fire marshals. They're out there defending against unnecessary or unnatural wildfires by stomping them out before they get too far. Oh my gosh, my mom still says it's, that. <laughs> for real? Literally yesterday said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, it's a cool story, right? Like, the image, you can see it in your head. But, you know, when scientists look into it, looking at fires in areas where there both are and aren't rhinos... There isn't really any evidence that they are actually doing this job of defending us against wildfires. That said, there are a lot of true stories about heroic defenders of the planet out there in nature. Yeah, you're totally right. There's tons of examples of real-life defenders of nature, and it's either they're defending their territory, they're defending their herd or their pride, they're defending their ecosystem. And a really great example of this are scavengers. So I want you to picture this. You've got a massive carcass in the middle of the bush. Sure. It will attract a large range of hungry scavengers looking for a free and easy meal. Lions, hyenas, jackals, mongoose, gennets, eagles, all of them want to have a bite. For sure. But last up in this lineup of scavengers is the vulture. Yeah. So what's important about vultures is that their guts are able to destroy almost all bacteria. And they can even destroy a vegetative form of the anthrax bacteria. That is how strong wow. their guts are. Their stomach is a pH of between one and two, which is insane. So that's super acidic. Super acidic. And so the vulture scavenging greatly reduces the amount of time it takes for a carcass to be decomposed. It prevents the spread of disease in the environment from the rotting flesh. They recycle nutrients back into the environment. So a vulture is basically like the garbage disposal cleanup crew managers slash composters of the environment. <laughs> they keep everything sanitary and they keep it bacteria free. I, I love that. Vultures do so much and sometimes they're kind of underappreciated for this like crucial role that they do. Mm. You know, one cool thing that I learned about vultures a while back is how they know where to show up. Here in the Americas, the vultures that have evolved here, they find their prey through smell. So they're going to be cruising around, flying through the air, and they smell that rot 
that comes off of the dead bodies. So that super gross smell mm -hmm. is actually this powerful tool for defending the ecosystem that smells a call to action. And what's interesting is that not all defensive smells give off a stench. In fact, to humans, some of them smell pretty good. A group of molecules that are called green leafy volatiles is emitted almost immediately upon damage. This is Mike Kolomietz from Texas A&M University, and he's talking about one of my favorite smells. Maybe 10, 15 seconds after you crush the leaf tissue, you will be able to smell it. It's one of the joys of summer, that nostalgic, fragrant hit of freshly cut grass. But mowing the lawn is not so fun for the grass, apparently. Mike's an expert in the molecular biology of plant defense responses. You can think of it as a scream for help. It looks like it's a universal sort of language for plants to understand each other and to, to defend themselves. When grass encounters damage, either by a human tending to their garden or by a herbivore enjoying a meal, it releases a smell within a group of molecules called green leafy volatiles. It smells delicious to us, but for the grass, it's a scented scream for help and a warning to nearby plants too. The neighboring plant can also eavesdrop. They can sense elevated levels of these molecules. And the neighboring plant also activates defenses against herbivory attack. The grass and the plants are now on high alert for anything that may harm them, creatures that might want to eat them. And so they unleash a defense, releasing toxic metabolites. If you were to purify these toxin, uh, toxins, wool would reduce growth rate of uh, herbivores, caterpillars, for example. It's detrimental to their health, and some of them may be even able to kill them. They, they might have insecticidal activity. Mike says these toxic metabolites can affect herbivores as small as caterpillars or as big as sheep, goats, cattle, and maybe even humans. It got us thinking about the way we prepare and cut the plants we eat. Sometimes I even think, so uh, is that really a good thing that we crush our salads when they, we eat them? Because the longer we keep those salads in the crushed state, are we consuming some of this not so good metabolites to us? That's a good question. So maybe we should be eating our salads like the full leaf rather than a chopped salad. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I don't think anyone addressed that question, but I, I would assume yes. The more, you, uh, the more you damage the tissue, the more of these metabolites are likely to be produced because it's a natural defense of plants against, you know, herbivores. Yeah, Ritendo, I don't know if I'm going to be able to eat a salad and chop it up without thinking about these plants having this defensive response to what I'm doing. But I actually want you to hold on to that thought, Sebastian, because things get even cooler. 
You see, the green leaf volatiles don't just warn other plants, but they actually recruit reinforcements in the form of parasitic wasps. That is the cool bit. These parasitic wasps detect the green leaf volatiles and they come and further defend the plants by attacking the herbivores like caterpillars that are trying to eat the plants. So they know where the kind of victim is by smelling these volatiles. It's, it's another interesting kind of side effect of emission of green leafy volatiles. Mike first started to study this as part of a focus on creating sustainable crops. But is he sick of the smell of grass yet? I mow my own grass, so I have to smell it every time I do it. And I really like it. I grew up in Ukraine, um, around Kiev region, and I grew up on a farm. And you always smell it. And so when you grow up with it, you, you learn how to enjoy it. I really love how the smell that we're all familiar with can mean so many different things to different audiences. And I'm sitting here being like, you know, for me, that that beautiful grass smell is just like imminent suffering because <laughs> I'm super allergic to grass pollen. So it's a call of defense for yourself, like <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. It, it, it is a reminder to be like, did I take my allergy meds today? Do I got to go wash my face now? But this whole grass smell thing, it's also this really cool example of co-evolution, right? Mm -hmm. This really cool thing that happens in nature where there's different species that are kind of locked in this like eternal struggle with each other. And they keep evolving a defense against the other one. Just like the acacia tree. Oh. Yeah. So the acacia tree's main herbivore is the giraffe. Giraffes love acacia leaves. And just like the grass, acacia trees have found a way to prevent them from overeating them by releasing a toxic substance called tannins. And what tannins do is they can be toxic if you eat too much of them, but they also make the leaves bitter. And they not only make their own leaves bitter, but the tannins are released into the wind and other acacia tree kind of pick it up and they make themselves bitter as well in defense. So it's like a defensive smoke signal that they're all releasing to protect one another. But the giraffes have now got a defense in response to this. So... Before the tannins can be released to other acacia, making those acacia bitter as well, giraffes will eat upwind and not have a bitter meal. But the acacia have figured this out as well. So in addition to releasing tannins that make their leaves bitter, they also have red ants that live in them. Oh, wow. And those red ants mobilize and they will attack the giraffe. And so this giraffe is having bitter leaves and being bitten by ants. <laughs> but for some reason, they can't help themselves but eat acacia. And so they've learned to withstand and tolerate the biting that they get from red ants. Ouch. It's like a bad addiction. <laughs> but yeah, this happens a lot in nature. But way too often, the natural world needs to be defended from, well, us, human activity. 
Look around and there are crises everywhere and they are getting worse. We are seeing record high rates of deforestation in South America, especially in the Amazon. Every April in Brazil, there's a large indigenous gathering in the country's capital of Brasilia. It's called Free Land Camp and brings together the main indigenous organizations in the country. At this year's camp, demonstrations were held against a series of government bills, which the protesters claim would harm the environment. Campaigner and independent filmmaker Alice Aidy was there, and she sent us some of her recordings. We are just approaching Congress, and the police are out in full force. The atmosphere is pretty electric, and this is a specific march against Bolsonaro, the controversial Brazilian leader. And the 8,000 strong indigenous communities have come out with a very clear message. Fora Bolsonaro. Out with Bolsonaro. Fora Bolsonaro! Nossa povo não Fora Bolsonaro! There is an ongoing struggle over indigenous land rights in Brazil. Who controls the land has an impact on environmental decisions such as whether land is allowed to be cleared for mining or used for large building developments. Sonia Guajajara is a prominent indigenous leader who was named as one of 2022's most influential people by Time magazine, and she was at the demonstration. I'm Sonia Guajajara of the Guajajara people from the territory of Arariboia in the state of Maranhão. We're living in a moment of destruction, destruction of biodiversity, destruction of the forest, with predatory development that contaminates the waters and pollutes the rivers. And when we indigenous people say our territory, we're referring to the soil, the water, the forests, the seas, the oceans. This is what we mean by territory, is the combination of everything that assures life on Earth. Which is why on this Earth Day, it's very important that we all listen to this call, the call for Earth. Sonia and others want indigenous people to have a bigger say in political decision-making. She's one of several women running for election. For a long time, indigenous women have been in a secondary place, a place where we couldn't occupy spaces of decision-making, spaces of leadership. But we have been conquering this space, And this is very important because we really want to end this inequality of participation. Women today are much more empowered and are taking a leading role in these political fights. The role of women in the movement is significant. For indigenous peoples, territories are considered extensions of their bodies, where life and reproduction of future generations take place. Humans and nature are seen as integral parts of the same ecosystem, where species are interdependent on each other. Another prominent activist at the demonstration was Celia Chakriaba, an indigenous teacher and poet. My name is Celia Chakriaba from the Chakriaba people, state of Minas Gerais and the Cerrado Bayon. Today, we say that the earth is the mother and others say that the river is the father. But in reality, I also consider our rivers to be a woman, because what is the river if not a breast that collectively nurses humanity? We need to realize that taking care of the earth is taking care of the supply of food, of water, of medicines, and our bodies. 
because our bodies are our territories, just like our territories are our bodies. There will be no more breaths on our planet without appreciating the presence of diversity in the world. In this moment, the calling is not only for us, indigenous people, because there is no future without fruit, without food. These indigenous leaders believe that it's not just their rights they're defending. They believe that in protecting their ancestral lands, they are also protecting the planet's life support systems. Today, this recovery of awareness is urgent. At this moment, our fight is not only to reforest the earth, but it's mainly to prevent deforestation. Because reforesting takes too long, and in this moment, we're calling to rekindle the ancestral light, so that everyone understands that there will be no world left without the presence of indigenous people. Because we make up 5% of the global population, but we protect around 83% of the biodiversity. Celia wasn't just talking about the importance of species diversity. Brazil has a huge diversity of biomes, or ecosystems, not just the Amazonian rainforest, but also the Atlantic rainforest, grasslands, hot, dry savanna, and even more. It's very urgent that we also think about the diversity of biomes or types of ecosystems. I'm from the Cerrado biome, a type of savanna, which is the second largest Brazilian biome. But there's a real diversity of biomes in this country, including the Amazon rainforest, Atlantic rainforest, Pantanal, a seasonal wetland, Pampa, a type of grassland ecosystem, and Caatinga, a dry forest ecosystem. This diversity of biomes represent the best way to tackle climate change. Because one biome alone is not going to save the planet. Sonia Guajajara explains that diversity of life, of biomes, and of thought is what's needed. We need to make society understand that it's urgent to take care of Mother Nature by re-establishing this connection with our ancestry. We need to protect forests and the biodiversity within them so that we can secure the future of life on Earth. It's important to reforest our minds. We need to reforest our hearts and minds so that we can build a world and a society that suits everyone that suits the ethical, cultural and territorial diversity, and to create a good quality of life for all societies. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
It is so powerful to hear Sonia and Celia talk about why this matters to them. They are trying to dismantle and fix the broken system that has gotten us to the current climate crisis. Mm -hmm. It's really different from how I used to hear about the environment. Everything was framed as these small individual choices, that it was our personal responsibility to pick up trash and recycle and, you know, use less energy, use less water, as if doing that would make logging and oil spills just magically go away. And I am so glad that indigenous people, oppressed people, these courageous people are fighting back against the real threats. Defending the earth can be about willing to risk it all, whether that's being an activist and marching or being on the ground as a ranger, needing to employ military tactics to protect wildlife and ecosystems. I mean, you can lose your life as a conservationist. Absolutely. Take, for example, Rory Young, the anti-poaching strategist and conservationist who, during a wildlife protection patrol in Burkina Faso, So in 2021, was actually attacked by terrorists and he lost his life along with two Spanish journalists who were documenting his conservation efforts. That sort of thing happens a lot in South America, too. And it puts into perspective, like, how much this means to Sonia, Celia and others like them. Their homes, their lands, their livelihoods, their traditions are all being attacked And they have been for a really long time. So many of the modern problems in a lot of ecosystems come from actively ignoring traditional land management practices. Like take forest fires in the North American ecosystem. Thanks to lightning strikes, small fires were actually kind of normal every now and then. The wildlife here evolved to handle that. The fires would clear away dead plant material, and it would help many species of trees and plants to actually germinate, to grow. Mm -hmm. Indigenous practice took that into account. They would occasionally do controlled burns. It was part of just the cycle of life here. If you stop doing all of that, dead plant material builds up for years and years and years and years. And when there finally is a fire that gets out of control and isn't put out, it's way bigger and more destructive than it would have been. And wildlife, the ecosystem, the people living there don't have a way of dealing with that. That's interesting because conversely, in sub-Saharan Africa, controlled burning of savanna grasslands is not just part of traditional land management practices. It's part of modern land management practices that are used in the region because it encourages new vegetation growth, controls parasitic tick populations. But importantly, like you're saying, Sebastian, it prevents unwanted bushfires. And there's another thing that Sonia said that's really hit me. And it's a clear point that we need to reforest our minds. We need to regain connection between ourselves and the rest of nature. And that's so powerful to me. Because as humans, our societies have grown into a place where we've segregated ourselves from nature. And we've got this big divide between humans and ecosystems, us versus them. But in truth, we are just as part of nature as nature is part of us. And it's important to acknowledge that this connection with nature has been lost in various ways, colonialism, war, industrialization, displacement. 
But in reality, society isn't healthy when our ecosystems aren't healthy and vice versa. And to take care of the earth, we have to take care of the whole earth, not just the things that we consider beautiful, but the ugly parts too. What makes an animal ugly to humans? It's the fact that we are shallow. Like we seem to only care about things which have got backbones. We seem to only care about things fortunate enough to have a face that we can kind of identify. President of the Ugly Animal Preservation Society, Simon Watt. So we kind of have a brain, I think, so predisposed to finding the kind of slightly chubby, big-eyed look that a baby has. Something that we consider cute. And then we stick those ideas onto all of Mother Nature. Simon's talking about a concept called the baby schema. If a species has baby-like features, such as a round face and big eyes, we as humans are more likely to consider it cute and worthy of care. So we consider things like a slow loris, which is lucky enough to have big moon-like eyes and be all fluffy and have those indistinct features, so a bit like the chubbiness of the cheeks of a child. Yeah, we think that's beautiful or cute. But everything else... Ah, we let it slide. If you're unlucky enough to be a bit moist, like an amphibian, then then you're really doomed. People don't care about you. And it's not just amphibians. Whenever Simon talks about his favourite animal, the ant, he doesn't get the warmest reception. People were always asking me, Simon, what's your favourite animal? And then I'd start telling them about some ants that I find deeply fascinating. And I would just watch as the crowd's eyes glazed over They seem so disappointed that when they ask me such a well-teed-up question to talk about elephants and all these magnificent, charismatic megafauna that I've worked with, and I was telling them about a puny little bizarre anarchist insect that's an ant. And sure enough, then you start noticing that everybody loves things like the panda and the snow leopard and the polar bear. But if that's all you care about, you're missing the point. You know, you're missing the crisis that we're deep into. Simon and the Preservation of Ugly Animal Society show the beauty of quote-unquote ugly animals because positive human perception of species greatly improves their chances of being protected. So to do that, they poke fun at some quote-unquote cute animals. There's a couple of reasons why I've been taking pot shots of pandas for all this time. For a start, because they're too big to fail. So if I was going to pick a a thing to kind of lampoon. It's a good choice because everybody knows what it is. They are universally regarded as being cute and cuddly and loved, but I'm not actually going to make a dent in their popularity. But come on! (laughs) They're just lucky to have the evolutionary good fortune of looking like a teddy bear, and that (laughs) is not good enough. So I just wanted to take a little bit of the limelight away to give to all these other things that we, we should be talking about too. So that's my problem. They're fine. Taking care of ugly animals isn't just important for that species. It has a massively positive effect on the entire ecosystem too. So if we lose some of the ugly animals, of course there's that problem that everything's connected in nature, so nothing goes extinct in isolation. Who knows what else will disappear? Um, But fundamentally, there's other questions here. Just if we lose stuff, it's gone forever. These things don't come back. You know, all that evolutionary potential, all that... The biochemistry even is lost. Now, if you consider the number of cures and things we get from species, the UN uh, for a couple of years has been saying that the threats to our biodiversity are a current bigger threat to our planet than terrorism. 
you know, the trillions of pounds that are lost every single year because of ecosystems falling apart, desertification, soil which is suddenly useless and turned to dust bowls, flooding which is caused by an ecosystem collapsing because it's missing some key predators which kept other things in check. These problems are hard to talk about, and that's why Simon uses comedy to tackle them. If you're into conservation, every day opening the newspaper is just what died today. You know, you're condemning yourself to a life of being a bit depressed. And I think we need to talk about these things in some way lightly. And the, the other side of this is you look at these animals, they're ridiculous. Like, they're obviously ridiculous. So you get things like, let me see, oh, the humphead wrasse. Well, it's all in the name there. It's like it's got a camel's hump just buying square on its forehead. You get the bumphead parrotfish, similarly well endowed with a huge massive knock on the noggin, but then also these enormous buck teeth. You get the hagfish, right? Yeah. Now, some hagfish are endangered, some are doing all right, but this is a creature that evolved long before chins were invented. So it's this strange creature that can pump out gallons of snot. Oh, that's gross. <laughs> so yes, I can see how it's not appealing. Like, I, I've got a toddler, and so I know what, you know, extreme snot looks like. You know, they're, they're practically slippery with it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so a hagfish, what an amazing way of getting away. This is someone who's saying what I've been saying. I think he and I would get along very, very well. <laughs> when I was talking to him, I was like, yeah, Sebastian would have loved to be here. It's super noticeable when you're like watching like nature documentaries. Watch something about big cats. Watch something about spiders. Both of these are like smart, violent, excellent predators that would totally consider eating us if we were the same size as their regular prey. And just like pay attention to like the adjectives they use to talk about the different animals, the music that they use. It is like night and day. It is a superhero movie and like a horror movie. Yeah, for sure. It's like the Lion King versus eight-legged freaks, right? A hundred percent. I mean, where where's my spider Lion King, okay? Give me something, right? We don't, we don't even tell these types of stories about, you know, ugly animals. How about Charlotte's Web? Charlotte's Web is great. Charlotte's Web is about a pig. It's it's literally the spider's there to save a pig. Come on, give us our own stories. But she was beautiful. <laughs> she was. But see, that's the thing. She was drawn in Charlotte's Web. Charlotte is drawn in a way to make her cute, yeah. even though that's not what a spider looks like. That's true. And, like, that's a problem. Because, like, if you look at endangered species lists, like, a huge percentage of them are vertebrate animals. And it's not because, like, invertebrates are doing fine. There's actually a lot of evidence that they are at really big risks. It's because to be on the endangered species list, you need a ton of money for research to learn about that species and learn exactly how threatened they are and by what in order to figure out how to defend them. And there's plenty of people who love these ugly animals like me and Simon and tons of scientists. There just isn't money and public interest in actually funding all that work and defending them. In reality, if I diverted, you know, attention away from the elephant, which I love, and gave, <laughs> you know, some of that attention to maybe something like the stick insect, you know what I mean? It's not going to put a dent in the work that's happening yep. on elephant research and conservation, 
but it would do wonders for the conservation of stick insects. In order for us to protect biodiversity, we need to be biodiverse in our thinking. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. We need mm -hmm. to be yeah, able absolutely. to appreciate, you know, what an animal looks like for what it is. Man, if I'm not the most attractive person in the world, like, that doesn't mean I deserve to be treated any worse. Same works for animals, right? It's exciting to imagine what a diverse and strong ecosystem we might have by changing our mindset, by defending all the animals out there. Yeah. So what does a diverse and strong ecosystem sound like? Well, this one sounds like a medley of frogs all found within the same swamps of southeastern USA, and all delivering their defensive territorial mating calls. Carl Gerhardt from the University of Missouri can interpret them for us. He's an expert in the acoustic communication of frogs and toads. So we'll leave you with our final sounds from our defenders of the earth. The males are producing what are called advertisement calls. They are essentially signaling to the female, I'm a male of your species, but they're also signaling to males of their own species that I'm here and you better not get too close. Aggressive calls are given when a male gets too close to another one. In the case of the tree frogs and the spring peeper, they're defending a calling site. And it's important for them to maintain that site because they have a better chance of attracting the female if they're staying in one place. bullfrog, however, the male is defending more than just a calling site. He's got a place where the female will lay her eggs. And so it's important for him to uh, defend that territory because the female may uh, base her decision not just on how sexy he is or his call, but on the quality of that territory for where she's going to lay the eggs. In the beginning of the bullfrog uh, mating season, these calls uh, almost always precede a fight, a wrestling match, and the males are attempting to repel the male completely or at least to set up a common recognized boundary. What's fascinating is that bullfrogs have learned to recognize the advertisement call of that established neighbor. And when a new one comes in, or a strange male comes in, then that aggressive call or territorial call is going to proceed a fight, because he doesn't know whether that new male is going to try to take over his territory.
The BBC Earth podcast was hosted by Rutendo Shackleton and me, Sebastian Echeverri. Our interviewees were Carl Gerhardt, Sonia Guajajara, Celia Shakriaba, Mike Kolomietz, and Simon Watt. With many thanks to Alice 80 for the Brazilian protest report and Lang Elliott for the sounds of territorial frogs. Our producers are Jeff Marsh and Rachel Byrne. The researchers are Dawood Qureshi and Seb Masters. The production manager is Catherine Stringer, and the production coordinator is Gemma Wooten. The podcast theme music was written by Axel Cacoutier, and mixing and additional sound design was by Peregrine Andrews. The associate producer is Kristen Kane, and the executive producer is Deborah Dudgeon. The BBC Earth podcast is a BBC Studios production for BBC Earth. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.